We're in a series called H5, Healing Healthy Habits, Hyped Habits and Hope. As you know, the last couple weeks we took a little bit of a detour. And if you missed the last couple weeks of Danielle's message and Mark's message, I would encourage you to go back and listen to them. Um, Part of the reason why we did that little detour, as I mentioned before, is that we've been receiving notes, emails. Uh, Danielle especially has been getting some inbox messages from people uh, literally all over the nation. We have some friends that are in New York and Minnesota, etc. And they've been just sharing that they themselves, in their own churches that they've been going to for, for many, many years, now feel alienated as a result of this new socio-political season that we're in. By the way, friends, we love getting notes from you and emails and uh, comments and questions. And we just want to make sure that you know that uh, when you send those to us, it's a a big encouragement to us because it helps us to know how we're connecting and how this ministry, the talks that we give, the relationships that we have are benefiting your life and loving you, etc. So please make sure that you let us know. But as a result of some of these uh, emails uh, and some of the notes, the tenor, the feel, just the backdrop, the cultural, the, the milieu, Uh, of this time and season has really been um, distracting and a little bit heavy for for us. I'd like to push us through into the H5 series, which is all about these three things. How do we get healed? How do we get healthy? How do we get hyped and vision for something? But please know that in the back of my mind, and I'm actually going to even reference some political stuff, not to be political, but as an example of what this principle might look like in politics— Um, This is in the back of my mind, hoping that as a church, we can still be extremely relevant to our socioeconomic and political context that we're in. Um, I wrote a blog post uh, right after November 9th and, uh, or 8th, (laughs) I can't even think anymore. And one of the things that I wrote in there was this dilemma that I feel as a pastor, as somebody who cares deeply about uh, the people that I'm in relationship with, but yet I'm clergy which means that anything that I say politically uh, threatens the integrity of this institution from an IRS standpoint. And so I have this really difficult tension that I manage all the time of trying to make sure you speak up and stand up for the values and the way of Jesus. And when the way of Jesus, as we see and understand it, uh, then makes its way into a political platform, uh, I'm caught in a little bit of a catch-22. And so my hope is that even though that tension exists for us and for me, we hope to always be relevant, that we're speaking to where you are in your place, that the teachings that we give meet you in the very point of your need. There's questions. What do I do now? How do I now live in this world? How do I friend or unfriend people on Facebook, or how do I deal with that reality? How do I go to church now knowing that my neighbor has voted a particular way? How do I understand how people have These are all questions that I think many of us are still wrestling with in this season, and I hope that some of these teachings help to meet that need for you. The first teaching that I gave in this series was the first question, where does it hurt? And we talked about the opening passage of Proverbs where the whole idea of Proverbs is to give you wisdom and instruction and understanding, insight. These are all words that mean intimate ways to live in this world 
not foolishly, but wisely. And let me tell you something. Uh, whenever you face difficulties, traumas, we talked about trauma a couple weeks ago, it is very, very easy to slip out of wisdom and into anger or fear or disgust. Some characters that might make for a good movie. And uh, it's very easy to slip into that. So Proverbs comes along and says, I want to give you wisdom. And this beautiful phrase, forgiving prudence to those who are simple. And we talked about how there's always more to the story. And if we think that it's just a simple answer, then we're missing a lot of things. And the Proverbs are there to help guide us to what is more. And today I want to move to the second H, which is healthy. Here's your question that I would love for you to take away. The first question is, where does it hurt? Locating where it hurts will help you start to heal. Second question, what do you want? What do you want? Such a simple question. But if we can get to the core and the heart of this question, then we can start to get healthy in how we respond to the hurts and the pains and the challenges that we face, especially in the sociopolitical context and culture that we live in. Proverbs 12, 25. Everybody, let's say this together on your lips. Have it memorized. Together, go. Anxiety weighs down the human heart, but a good word cheers it up. Anxiety weighs... Does that sound uh, familiar? Does that sound like... Yeah? Does that sound true? Yes. Of course it does. I want to give you a scenario. I want you to pretend that you are a doctor. And uh, our, my known doctor is not here today, so I was unable to confirm this with him. I want you to pretend that you are a doctor and you have a 53-year-old patient. And they're in the hospital having a basic test, a computerized tomography-guided biopsy of his liver. It should take about an hour, so the technician suggests to the patient's wife that she go shop at the mall across the street and expect a call when her husband is ready to go home. But instead, the wife answers her cell phone to hear a nurse frantically telling her to return to the hospital right away. When she does, she learns that her husband has died. You're the doctor, and you're the doctor who's in the room, with this shocked and grieving widow, what do you say to her as a doctor? Now, what I've just shared with you is a real story by this gentleman's name, Doug. I'll just call him Doug. He's the founder of an organization entitled Sorry Works! Exclamation point. He posed this scenario recently to a bunch of attendees at a neurologist conference, and it took about two minutes before anyone put their hand in the air. And his reply to them was this. That's the problem. You don't have two minutes. And here's why, for those of you who aren't doctors. For many physicians, their reflex is to avoid the situation and say nothing or as little as possible in the aftermath of patient harm. Part of this response comes from a long-standing mindset that physicians should, quote, deny and defend against any possibility of being charged with any culpability in cases of possible medical malpractice. Until the last decade or so, most lawyers and malpractice insurers promoted this advice. Has anybody ever had an experience like that where you have a situation 
And can you imagine in our litigious society where people are so happy, how very easily it would be for the system itself to fall into? I'm not saying anything, empathizing or whatever. Increasingly, however, this article goes on to say, the healthcare industry is recognizing, listen to this, the benefits of prompt and transparent physician communication with patients and families about bad outcomes. And the legal landscape is shifting as at least 36 states now have adopted apology laws that prohibit certain statements, expressions, or other evidence related to disclosure from being admissible in a lawsuit. Most state laws keep expressions of empathy and sympathy from being admissible in court, while a few protect admissions of fault. What has happened, according to this article and some other research that I've read, is that physicians who may have made a mistake or have done something to cause patient harm have an impulse immediately to not empathize, say sorry, or anything like that. Why? Because that particular statement now makes you culpable, makes you open to being sued for malpractice. And again, as we live in this kind of world, you can imagine how this is going. However, there's this movement started by this gentleman and the, the website, etc., that has now shifted the entire mentality around physicians and patients who have experienced harm to now adopting a practice where empathy, expressions of concern or sorry, are now allowable. And not only allowable, but they are saved or they're protected by law in these particular states. Question, what do you think has happened to the, A, the number of lawsuits against physicians, B, the amount of payout for the lawsuits that do happen against those physicians? What's your guess? They have decreased. This article writes, there is good evidence indicating that instead of increasing lawsuits and awards to patients, apologies actually reduce both the incidence of lawsuits and the amount of awards. In other words, when a doctor who may have made a mistake simply says, I am so sorry, and begins to connect and empathize with that person, that reduces the probability of a lawsuit, and if it does go to lawsuit, it reduces the amount of the possible payout. Now, here's what's so fascinating. The study goes on to say, why is this? The reason is the victim doesn't want money. What do they want? They want the physician simply to acknowledge the error and explain it. They want the physician to simply take responsibility and apologize. And then, of course, the key thing, they want the physician to find the underlying cause and prevent its recurrence. Do, do you resonate with this? What is it that you ultimately want? Do you want money because somebody you love has been hard? No. This is what you want. And what's fascinating is on the physician end, what do they want? They want to not get sued. They want to make sure that there's no malpractice. They want to make sure that they are out of the court. They did not go to school to litigate. And yet somehow these two different wants have been misunderstood about each other 
for years and years and years in the medical profession, as I understand. And again, I have to talk to the doctor to confirm or any of, of you who are in this profession. But once you understand what you ultimately want and what somebody else ultimately wants, that is where healthy relationships soon begin to arise. Are you with me? There was a complete misunderstanding of the physicians of what patients actually wanted, or at least a fear of knowing what they wanted, that led to higher litigation and higher payouts when those lawsuits came. This is why our work of human response, of empathy and love, because what is this ultimately? This is ultimately about loving somebody. Love works. Love actually has economic implications. And here's one of the implications. Two things that come out of this question. What is it that you want? What is it that you want ultimately is an interrogation of your past heart and an envisioning of a redemptive future. What do I mean by that? If you think about the doctor, what do I want? I want to not get sued. But if that is the thing that you ultimately want, and you live out of that want, you may ultimately end up doing more damage to yourself, to your profession, etc., because of that want. There's a different want that a physician has. Most everybody I know that went to medical school goes to medical school because they want to actually help people, to care for people. And somewhere in the litigious nature of our society, in the bureaucracy of our systems, the original want of wanting to care and help and, and serve people slowly gets replaced by a different want. And when that want soon takes over, you've lost your original want or your original passion or the want or the desire that could ultimately be the best practice. That's what I mean by an interrogation of your past heart. When you ask this question deep within yourself and you say, what is it that I ultimately want? It is a way of looking back and saying, what have my behaviors been? And how have I lived out of that desire? And how has that gotten me to this place that I'm at right now? But it's also an envisioning of a redemptive future. From the patient's end, who has had this horrible thing happen to them, by expressing deeply what they want. I want acknowledgement. I just want to know that this physician cares and I want them to make it better. This is what, I don't want money. I want those things then that want can ultimately move and transform an entire system into acting and behaving more humanely. It's a huge, beautiful picture of what the future could possibly be. So this example of litigation and lawsuits within physicians, to me, is a brilliant example of how the question, what do you want? is deeply powerful for the decisions that you make that drive what it is that you do. A little bit of a side note, the Proverbs 12, 25, anxiety weighs down on the human heart. That word anxiety is actually the same word that is found in Psalm 38, 18, which some translate, I confess my iniquity, I am troubled. Some translators, I am sorry for 
my sin or by my sin. And I thought those two put together with this example was really, really powerful and profound. That the anxiety that weighs on my heart, if I can turn that into sorrow, I'm so sorry, empathetic, that could radically change and transform. Okay, friends, that's your message today. What do you want? But obviously there's more to that question. What are some things that get in the way of us really knowing? Because if I were to ask you, what is it that you want? Most of the time when I sit down with people and ask them, so what do you want? This is what happens. Um, They tell me what the problem is. Tell me what the challenge is. They tell me what really ticks them off. They can tell me exactly who's to blame. But then when I ask, what do you really want? Do you want them to be punished? Well, no, that's not what I really want. Do you want to be angry at them for the right? No, that's not what I really want. What do you want? This is a hard question to get at, and there's a couple reasons why. Number one, the immediacy of the fear. We talked a little bit about this a couple weeks ago. When your amygdala, when your brain is firing, when your limbic system is going fear, 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 fight, 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 faint, 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 whatever it is, it's really hard for your prefrontal cortex, the part of the executive functioning of your brain to say, wait, stop, pause, think about this logically and rationally for a moment. So the immediacy is often a difficult thing that gets in the way. Fear, protectionism, sometimes it's superiority. Sometimes it's like, well, forget those people. I have what I want, and what I want is like what I want, so who really cares about anybody else? One of the most difficult things that I have found in this particular season is a thing called correspondence bias. It's also known as the fundamental attribution error. Correspondence bias, fundamental attribution error is this. How many of you have driven down the road and somebody cuts you off? What do you immediately conclude about that person? They are a bad person. And a bad driver. And they smell, too. Question. Have you ever been in the car and you've cut somebody else off? What do you think about that person? Do you? Oh, Audrey, you feel terrible about yourself when you cut people off. That's very sweet. Most of us go, there was a reason why I needed to do that maneuver. Yes? Come on, be honest. When somebody cuts you off, you attribute, fundamental attribution error, you attribute that action to some sort of character flaw of that individual. But when you do it, you attribute that action to a circumstance or a reason or a rationale. Okay. Parents, have you ever seen somebody else and their kids are going crazy, or the parents just sitting on the cell phone not paying attention. And have you ever, and I've read these articles, so I know maybe nobody in this room, but I know there's people out there that look at those people and say, well, aren't those parents just irresponsible? Yes? And then what happens when I'm with my little one, and that little one's going crazy, and then I'm like, I just need something. It's because she's crazy and I just need a break. The fundamental attribution error exists when you attribute somebody else's behavior to their character and my behavior to my circumstance. Question. Woe is right. 
Have you heard people say this season, I cannot believe they voted for blank. They must be. Don't say it out loud. Because their behavior is attributed somehow to their character or their intelligence. But my voting and my behavior is somehow attributed to my rationale, my circumstance, my thoughtfulness. If you have ever said these words, I just don't understand how you might be suffering from the fundamental attribution error. And as a result of this, because we feel so justified and right in who we are and how we think and how we behave, it is very difficult for us sometimes to actually answer the question, what do I really want in this? Because I'm not in a position of thinking through step one, results, what do I want to see in this world? I'm only in a position of judgment. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm being really hard tonight. And this is anxiety. This is the anxiety that weighs down the human heart. And I love this Proverbs, but a good word, a really good word, a good thing can cheer it up. And I'm going to suggest to you, your want should be for that good thing and try to figure out what that is. Now, a couple weeks ago, I shared with you that our hope and our goal, our mission here at this church is to create environments and experiences that inspire all of us to live in the way of Jesus. This is a brilliant story. Sometime later, this is told in the Gospel of John, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five color- covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for 38 years, he asked him, what do you want? I love it. Do you want to get well? And now, most of us, when we first come to this story, we immediately stop and go, what a stupid question. Jesus I thought you were supposed to be smart. This is why I think following in the way of Jesus is so brilliant. Because that question, what ultimately do you want? Pierces through all of the circumstance, pierces through all of that attribution and gets down to the heart of the matter. And watch the fundamental attribution error happen in this person. For those of you who know the story, you know exactly what's coming next. Sir, I have no one to help me into the pool. My circumstances, all the things around me. I am attributing my, my situation to everything around me. And what Jesus does is he flips all this around as he is so brilliant to do. And he says, once again, right here to you. Essentially, you. Stop looking at the people around you or your circumstances or the things that you're surrounded with. You, get up, take up your mat, and walk. And once that shift could happen, and it's not in the text, so I admit that what I'm about to say is conjecture, but I imagine this gentleman saying, I think that actually is what I want. Maybe 
what I've previously wanted is just to sit here because it's a lot easier. Now, I might say I want to be healed, but ultimately at the core of my being, what I want is to sit here because it's a lot easier to just sit here. And what Jesus does is this brilliant mastery of taking and connecting what Jesus ultimately wants for him and connecting it with what he wanted for himself. This is so brilliant with Jesus. And I think in this particular season, every single one of us in this room room have some core things that we really want to see about our nation, about our families, about our relationships. And the brilliance of what Jesus does in the story is connect what it is that you want, what he wanted for this gentleman, and he connected it with what it is that he wanted for himself by asking one simple question. Well, what, it is, what is it that you want? And then let's work together to see how that can happen. You ready to get political? Van Jones, who's a correspondent on CNN, uh, I don't know about all of his work, but this particular piece of work inspired me. And I think he exemplifies a little bit of what I'm talking about in what he did. This was pre-election. Staunchly open, committed liberal. And he went to Gettysburg to meet with a bunch of Trump supporters to just have a conversation. After he released this video series, which is called The Messy Truth, he got some comments on the YouTube page as they come. And I want you to hear his commentary. He's now speaking to those people. And you're going to hear this question, what is it that he wants in this dialogue, in this political season? And I think he exemplifies identifying what he wants as a radical shift and a change for how to have conversation and how to move redemption forward. So take a look at this. Hey, guys, this is Van. All right, so I've got really, really good news, and I've also got some kind of bad news. So I'm going to start with the really, really good news, which is simply this. Um, we created um, my, my, I got my own little uh, uh, media production company. It's just basically just me and my wife and like, you know, uh, my friends. But we decided to work with uh, Meridian Hill, a bunch of young uh, filmmakers to just create our very own miniseries. And it's called The Messy Truth. And basically, I decided to take my crazy behind to Trump territory, deep in the Trump territory, and to meet with and sit with and eat with and break bread with Trump voters and to actually have a real discussion. And we brought along uh, a, 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 a video crew, and it was amazing. Uh, it was extraordinary. And so we posted this thing. Uh, uh, so far, uh, two of the three episodes, we already have a million views. Uh, if you go to my Facebook page, we have a million views collectively between the trailer, episode one, episode two. And so, um, and we did it all volunteer, no corporate sponsors, no corporate ad, no political party, none of this stuff, just real people working together, trying to see can we avoid the next what looks to be a civil war in this country. Can we at least have a conversation? We don't have to agree, but can we at least understand? Can we at least be civil? It's civil, which is like the, the, the basis of civilization. Um, so we went to Gettysburg, the site of the last civil war. Uh, we went there um, and we said, is there gonna be another one? You are going to be stunned. 
you are going to be blown away by the kinds of conversations we were able to have, by how deep we were able to go, and by how honest people are. And some of the answers to these questions are going to shock you. So that is the good news. Um, and like I said, we've already got a million views and it's growing. Please go to, go to my Facebook page and check it out. And then, of course, there is the bad news. This is why we can't have nice things in America, okay? This is why we can't have nice things. So these folks, some right-wing, some liberal, but mostly right-wing folks, are brave enough and courageous enough to let me, a known liberal, on the left side of Pluto, come into their house with video cameras and, and, and speak about what they believe in. And we go back and forth. And then you go to the comment section. Are liberals and progressives saying kind things? Are they saying, oh, thank you for the civil discourse and the civil dialogue? Are they saying, I'm so glad that America's coming together? No! No! I say thee no! Liberals are going on the comment section and saying horrific things and terrible things about these conservatives who are at least willing to have a conversation. Now, if you are going to attack the people who are at least willing to have an honest conversation, we are never going to get anywhere. We are never going to get no place. This is not going to work. And so what I'm asking people to do is to go and watch the messy truth and comment, but if you comment, there are rules, people. This is an, a, this is, this is an attempt to build bridges, not burn them down. So if you want to say that you disagree with the people, and I'm sure that you will, I do, that's not a problem. But then what you have to do is to say how much you appreciate them as well and try to be fair about it. Remember the word fair? Remember civility, liberals? That's what we're supposed to be about. So watch the messy truth, please. But don't be a jerk about it. Don't get on there and just, you know, smash on the poor people. We've got to figure out some way to do this. This is brought to you by volunteers, people who really care, people who really believe in something, who want to see real discourse, who want to see real dialogue. The only money that we spent was the money for the pizzas. Everything was donated so we could make this thing happen. After this election, things could get better or things could get worse. We could have a breakthrough or we could have a breakdown based on how we deal with it. And based on the comment section, the comment section and the Messy Truth episode so far makes me very, very worried. So please check us out, give us feedback, but be constructive, be kind, um, and let's try to figure out the messy truth. The real truth is never one side or the other. It's always some messy thing that somebody's right about this, but they're wrong about that, and somebody's wrong about this, but they're right about that, and somebody's being a hypocrite about this one thing, but so are you. So are you, and so am I, and so is everybody. But we have a real chance, I think, based on what I saw in Gettysburg, the site of the last civil war. We have a chance to go into another civil war, and I'm not joking, or we, could have, we have a chance to break through and solve some of these real problems. So let's work together, check it out, the messy truth. This is Van Jones. In a mouth. I want to simply reiterate, we're not making a stance on what's right, liberal, or conservative. But this principle, I think Van just totally exemplified. Anxiety weighs the human heart, but a good word can cheer it up. Question, is this what Van wants? He wants conservatives to know that they're wrong. By the way, I've heard some of this rhetoric. I want liberals to know that they're wrong. I want conservatives. I want Americans to be liberal. 
No, this is not what he wants. You hear it very, very clearly in his work. This is what I want. Civility, understanding, building bridges, breakthroughs, real disclosure, real dialogue. I want us to be better. And the shift from what I've seen in conversations, from I wish those people would realize that they were wrong, to this is ultimately what I want, can radically change how we behave. It doesn't change our positions, our attitudes, our opinions. It doesn't change that. It does change how we behave, and it can change how what we want can connect with somebody else of what they want. This, to me, is the brilliance of this question. Because ultimately, the interrogation of your heart, you might find out what I really want is I want me to be right. You might actually find out some dirty things about your soul. You know what I want? I want all those people to go to H-E double hockey sticks in a handbasket. That's what I want. And you might have to do some soul searching. There's this paradox that exists in the church. I want to speak to some people who feel as if that part of this season means that they are now alienated from their place of faith. And here's the great paradox. The paradox is that the church is supposed to be salt, light, a city on a hill. And we're supposed to be this welcoming place for the downtrodden, the disenfranchised, those who have been broken. And this has come into conflict in how the church capital C Church, has exemplified what it wants. Here's the things that many of us in our communities are recoiling against because what we see, this is what the church actually wants. The church actually wants to grow. I've had people tell me that if Spark ever talked about a growth strategy, I'm out of here. Some of you are like, yeah, that sounds right. Uh, The church wants to be prominent, wants to be in power. The church wants to govern. This is why now we get involved with politics, because we want our morality to now be the police of the world. This is the thing that the church has in many ways wanted. The reason why this question is so important to me is because envisioning the future envisions the question, what if the church really wanted this? What if the capital C church really wanted love to be at the foundation of all of our work? Not legislating our morality, but love. What if what we really, really wanted is for God's reputation to be good in this world? What if we really, really wanted to free people from injustice? And for the hot topics that are political, what if we really, really, really wanted to do something about abortion? About capital punishment? About drugs? About all of those things? Because sometimes the rhetoric that I hear is what we really want is what I really want is I want my way to be on the ballot. Do you see how that subtle shift of question could radically change how we behave? What if we really wanted the reconciliation of broken relationships? And what if we really, really, really wanted to be a shining light, salt of the earth that brings beautiful flavor and preservation, and a city on a hill, a place in ancient times where people could run to when there was danger? What if the church really wanted to do that? What if we really wanted to live in the way of Jesus? Because sometimes what we really want is to be in political power. Anxiety weighs down the human heart, but this want, this good thing could totally cheer 
us up. Last story, and then I'll close. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? So there's Peter, there's John Mark. When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? (laughs) Jesus answered, If I want him to remain until I come, what does it matter to you? You. You. You follow me. You follow me. My friends, I would love to suggest to you that this question, what do you want, is really, really brilliant. In that last story, Peter is all about, well, I want to know what he wants. I want to know what's going to happen to him. I want to know, well, so distracted. And Jesus just boils it all down, saying, Peter, you follow me. Desire after me. Feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. This is your job. This is your responsibility. And I hope and I pray that this question that can be so piercing and so hopeful can radically shift and transform how we dialogue, how we behave. But it has to first start with us. What is it actually ultimately that you want? And as with other teachings that we have done before, hopefully that's just the beginning of the inquiry. Heavenly Father, our confession is sometimes we don't know what we want, but hopefully as we wrestle with the anxiety and the challenge of this world, you will begin to help us become more clear in what it is that we want and help us to desire the things that you desire for us, for our families, for our relationships in this world. Pray in your name. Amen.